Hey guys, uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Hands. I'm one of the pastors at Marsfield Community Church. Please have your Bibles open as we um, look at uh, Joshua chapter 9. I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at uh, this passage, which comes uh, to us from over 3,000 years ago, Lord, I, I do pray that you would help us to see it's relevance for not only the way we live our lives, but the way we live our lives under your gaze and your care. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us from it in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I was at a, I was the pastor of a church in Newtown, and we, we used to get very uh, a, a wide range of people uh, who came. And I can remember one guy uh, who came, um, even though he's very clean, he kind of had the, gave off this vibe of not being really uh, uh, like he had long fingernails and very long hair. And, and there was just something about him that, that just went, oh, OK, this, this guy's not as uh, neat and tidy as, as we would think. And I remember going to lunch with him over a series of, of, of lunches every week. I took him out to lunch and we would read the Bible and we would look at it. We would discuss what Jesus says about life and about him. And uh, he, he told me about his life and where, how he ended up where he, where he is. And then I remember him talking about his sister also. And I actually called up his sister and his sister, um, unlike him, is extremely successful. He was living in government housing and that kind of thing. And I can remember asking his sister, why does she think he ended up where he was? And she said, he was never good at making good decisions. He was never good at making good decisions. And one of the things that struck me when she said that, I, I thought, what is the difference between someone who actually has, has made it in life and not? Well, there's good luck and bad luck a lot of the time, but also a lot of it is the decisions we make. So, for example, there's a promotion at work. It is more money. It's exciting work. There's travel. Should you take it or not? There's a, there's a guy or a girl who is good looking, fun to be around and great in every way. And they ask you out on a date. Should you go out on that date or not? Our church or a church has a decision to redevelop property or to put on staff or to choose the next member of staff. How does that church make that decision? The next year of your life, for some reason, is open. You, you don't know what you're going to do or you've got all these different great options. How do you know what is the right decision to make? How do you know if a decision is good or bad? How do you know whether a decision is morally right or wrong? How do you know if a decision, if it's not, if you can't say it's morally right or wrong, but how do you know if it's wise or not? And then the question is, when you've made a bad decision, what do you do? So, see, I think it's not just the thing that you decide, but how you make that decision counts. In fact, I will go as far as to say how you make, how we make decisions shows us where we're at with God a lot of the time. So there, there's a way of making decisions 
that is God honoring and there's a way of making decisions that's functionally atheistic. The reason I bring up decisions and all this kind of stuff, because at the heart of this passage is uh, two decisions that the Israelites make and they have profound ramifications. And I actually think the way they make the, these decisions and the decisions themselves show where they are at spiritually. And I wonder if, if we were to look at the decisions you make and the way you make those decisions, what would that say about where you're at with Jesus, where you are at spiritually? See, because we all make good and bad decisions. We all make decisions. And so this is extremely relevant for us. It's extremely relevant for us, not only because we make decisions, but also because we want to be a people who serve God. We're going to see three things today as we look at this passage. We're going to see a bad decision. We're going to see a decision under pressure and the grace of God and our decisions. A bad decision, a decision under pressure and the grace of God and our decisions. Let's have a look at a bad decision. Let's First of all, did you see in verses 1 and 2, this is after um, the Israelites have defeated Jericho and I and all the kings of Canaan are just freaking out they're, they're they're panicking they are coming together to wage war against israel one of the things that you've got to know is this that the kings of canaan around this time were very disparate entities they hated each other's guts and they were at war and so for them to come together against israel shows the the massive threat that israel was but there's a city gibeon when they hear of what what happened to I and to Jericho, they actually make a ruse. They trick the Israelites. Have a look at verse 3 with me. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had to, done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put on worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes all the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. They, they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him, the Israelites, we have come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. So they basically made themselves look like disheveled people that have come from a, a land many, many days travel away. And so Joshua in, in, in inquires, verse 7 to 9, uh, about where where they're where they're from, and notice how in verse eight he doesn't. They don't say, "Oh, we're from this place." They say, "We are your servants." And Joshua asks again in verse eight, "Who are you, and where do you come from?" And they, in verses nine to thirteen, once again talk about their ruse. That that they say we're from a distant country. They talk about how uh, they're they're so fearful of Yahweh and the Israelites because of what what. God had done. And then here's the kicker. Here's what Israel did and didn't do. Have a look at verse 14. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. One of the things in, in the books of the Old Testament up, up to this point in Deuteronomy uh, and Leviticus, one of the and Exodus, the Israelites, before they go into the land of Canaan, are told, do not, under any circumstances, don't make a covenant of the people in Canaan. Don't make a covenant with them. Don't don't be in league with them. 
And yet that's exactly what they did here. They bought the ruse of the Gibeonites. But do you see why they bought it? Have a look at verse 14. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. It's not that they didn't think, it's they didn't pray and they didn't hear from God. It's not that they didn't think, it's they didn't pray and they didn't uh, you know, hear from God. They are meant to be this holy nation which relies on God. God is going to give them this land and what are they meant to be? What we saw last week at the end of chapter chapter uh, sorry chapter eight, they're 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 out at Mount Ebal and they are re kind of renewing their covenant with God and they are meant to be a holy people and here just in the next chapter they don't even think about God they didn't inquire about God at all see and there's a sense in which we see here a certain type of arrogance, a certain type of arrogance, and it shows that they aren't in a great place spiritually. The great reformer John Calvin in his institute says, prayerlessness is a form of atheism. Prayerlessness is a form of atheism. And there's a sense in which the Israelites here are acting and deciding as if God is not there. Because they don't inquire, uh, to, they don't go to him, they don't pray to him, they don't hear from him in making this huge decision. Uh, a friend of mine uh, had the privilege of working with two brothers who were both in ministry in, in very different ministry circumstances, but he worked um, with, with both of them at different times. And both both are brilliant and smart brothers. Uh, they're amazing. Both are leaders in, in their fields. When he was talking about the decision-making of both of them with me once, and he said that, that one of them would always lead strongly, would always come up with these great ideas and say, here's how we're going to do it. And everyone, he, he was able to get everyone on board. The other one used to say, oh, that, that's really, oh, that's puzzling, that's troubling. I wonder what God's word says. And then he will lead a discussion around what God's word says. And then he said, I think we need to pray about this. One brother was impressive, brilliant. But my friend said he came across as quite arrogant. The other one was humble and prayerful. Which one do you think my friend said made the better decisions? It was my, it was the one who prayed, the one who asked, what does the Bible say? Now, here's, here's the thing. We don't just pray and read the Bible when it comes to our decisions to make better decisions. It's not pragmatic like that. We pray and read the Bible because we are God's people and we want to honour God. So when you make a big decision... How do you actually make it? Do you actually pray and go to God's word? Do you pray about it or do you just think pragmatically? 
or, or think about those those situations that I talked about at the beginning. You've got a promotion, right? Your boss says, we want to promote you to this, this point and it's going to give you all this money. Well, what do you do? Well, you go to the Bible and you um, and you pray. Now, here's, here's the problem with that. There's nothing in the Bible that says, sure, uh, says anything about whether you should take a promotion or not. There's no book in the Bible. You can't go to Promotions 317 and it's going to tell you, right? But what does the Bible say about what you, who you are meant to be? So the Bible says, for me, I am meant to be a person who, who seeks God and honors God. Therefore, I need to make sure I've got time to do that. It says that I've got to be a good husband and a father. So I've got to have time and energy for the, those things primarily. They're my two gigs. And so I've got to ask this question. If, if I take this promotion, is this going to hinder me from doing my primary work, which is honoring God? and being a great husband and father. If it's going to hinder those things, there's a sense in which I probably shouldn't take that promotion. Do you, do you see how thinking about it and praying about it, oh, sorry, sorry, thinking about it with, from the Bible's perspective leads me to a decision? Or think about this, if that a guy or girl asks you out, well, what does the Bible say about dating? Well, it says some things that are kind of oblique, but one of the things... That, that we can say from it is if we're going to be in a relationship, does that person follow Jesus? If not, they, they potentially will lead you away. Or church decisions, right? The first question is, is not, is this going to make us a, a greater church or anything? It, it, the first question when making a big decision at church is, what is this church here for? It is to spread the gospel and grow people in, in their knowledge and love of Jesus and to care for people, right? So is this decision going to, you know, is it, if we decide this, is it going to help us do that? So it's not pragmatic. Or your future, you've got the next few years, who, who knows what I'm going to do with my life? Well, what are you on here? What, the Bible says, what, are your, what is your life about? about honoring god how are you going to do that with the rest of your life you, you see i think a lot of the time especially if you're educated especially if you've got a degree i think the more education we've got the more confidence that we've got in our own ability to make decisions and the more we will function as atheists when making decisions and what i mean by function as atheists is this we will make decisions without ever thinking about God. We'll be functional atheists. It blows me away that from our first reading in, in Luke 6, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's, he's Lord of the most important day. That means he's Lord over everything. He's the second person of the Trinity. Yet when he makes a decision, what does he do? He prays all night about it. He prays all night about it. I think that says that should say a lot about the decisions we make and the process. Instead of being like the, the guys in, in Joshua 9 who don't inquire of the Lord, Jesus gives us a model. We actually go to God with our decisions and hear from him. Is that how you make decisions? 
do you go to God? Because I think once again, it shows it shows in Joshua 9 where the Israelites were at spiritually. They were, I don't think they were in a, a particularly good place. And yet what we see is they make a little bit better of a decision in their next decision. Have a look at verse, uh, as we look at our second point, a decision under pressure. Let's have a look at verse 16. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were their neighbours living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephri, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath by them, by, to them by the Lord. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. So they, the Israelites hear that they're, they're local residents of Canaan, the Gibeonites. And so what do they do? They have made a huge mistake. Joshua and the leaders have made a huge mistake. And do you see what all their people are thinking? At the end of verse 18, the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. Now, every other time in the Bible up to this point, when Israel grumbles against the leaders, Israel is always in the wrong. But here's the point. Here, they grumble against the leaders and their leaders are in the wrong and they are in the right. They are grumbling against the leaders because they are saying, you have done the wrong thing. You guys have done the wrong thing. And so what do they do? They decide not to destroy them like they're going to do with, with all the rest of the Canaanites. But why? Do you see what, who they mention in a number of these verses? Verse 18. But the Israelites did not attack them. Why? Halfway through verse 18. Because of a sworn oath. to that They made a sworn oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 19 but all the israelites answered we have given them our oath by the lord the god of israel verse 20 we will let them live so god's wrath will not fall on us so here here's what they're thinking now and it's a change they are going we cannot destroy them why because we have put god's name into an oath if we go back on this oath, it will dishonor God. And so we're not going to do that. And so there is a sense in which what they're choosing to do now is think totally differently from how they did it before. They are choosing God's honor over everything. And can I just say, this decision makes no pragmatic sense. Because when you think about it, he is a group of people at this time in Canaan who were pretty much nobodies. Uh, this is going to weigh the Israelites down. But also, did you notice once again, all Israel is grumbling against the leaders. But the leaders didn't make a decision out of pragmatic concerns. They, their priority was not how this decision looks because it looks terribly bad to the people. Their, their priority was not what the people were going to say or not because the people were already, already frustrated and they're going to be frustrated. No, they wanted to honour 
their God. They knew that God is a covenant-keeping God, and therefore they should keep this covenant too. And so they did the hard thing, but the right thing, because they wanted to honour God more than anything. A number of years ago, I sat down with a very, uh, quite a famous CEO. I actually badgered him into getting this um, this lunch meeting with him. And I shouted him, um, Hungry Jacks, as, you know, because I was a student at the time. I didn't have any money. And we're sitting down um, at George Street, Hungry Jacks, eating our Whoppers. And we're, what you got to realize about this CEO is he was famous for making huge decisions huge decision that had huge ramifications for his company and its employees at one point in one year in the 80s he laid off 68,000 people and I came to him and I said how do you actually make those decisions right how do you make decisions under pressure and he said you've got to realize that people always misread you or disagree with you he said, even if you think that you have made it clear uh, that you are doing the right thing, people will not see that. And even if people can see that you try to do the right thing, they will still disagree with what you do. And he said, what you've got to do is make decisions that are in line with your core business. Now, can I just say, uh, I think... If your core business leads you to fire 68,000 people in one year, I think there's a problem with core business. Let's just get that out of the way. But I think he's right. You've got to figure out what you're, what you're on about, what your life is on about. And think about your life for a second. You are here to glorify Jesus and honour him. And therefore, how do you make decisions? What decisions are you going to make that are in line with that. Now, these decisions may make it hard for your relationships. People may not like it. People may even think that you are doing the wrong thing or they can't see the, the thought that you put into it, but you make a decision to honor, honor God. And this is the same, and this is one of the hard things about being in leadership in church, right? Um, being in leadership in church means that we're going to make, hard, make decisions that unfortunately, that, that sometimes we can't step everyone through all our processes of thinking, right? And yet, one of the things as leaders in church we've got to do is make decisions that are always honouring to God more than anything. And that may mean, can I just say, that may mean that some people at church may not get it, may not like it, or may not understand it. But we are always trying to make decisions that honour God first and foremost. That's what we're trying to do. So, what, so pray for the leaders at church that we would always do that. That we would always be thinking theologically about our decisions and prayerfully about this, our decisions, no matter what they are, that we are not swayed by either what people will think of us but more of what God will think of us and what God says in his word. See, Joshua and the leaders of Israel made, I think, a far better decision here 
is a hard decision, a decision under, under pressure, but they chose to honour God over deciding to go with the people. Very hard decision. A very hard decision, but they did the right thing. And finally, let's have a look at the grace of God and our decisions. In verses 21 to 26, the, the, the leaders of the Israelites basically said to them, uh, said to their people what, what these Gibeonites are going to do. Uh, they, they are going to basically be servants to us. Have a look at verse 26, or sorry, 27. That day he, that is Joshua, made the Gibeonites the woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of, of the Lord at the place that the Lord would choose. And that's what they are to this day. What did they become? They became the servants of the priests in the tabernacle and eventually the servants of the priests at the temple. The beautiful thing is, here is a group of people that were far from God and yet they are brought close to the priests and to the inner workings of the tabernacle and the temple where they would hear about how God has saved people how god is great how god is amazing that through their work there's a sense in which they will be evangelized they would hear about this god over and over and over and over again and so even though the israelites made this bad decision god is sovereign over our bad decisions and he's actually bringing a, a group of people to a point where they can hear about him and put their faith in him but there's another thing. Why does Joshua, in the end, not kill all the Gibeonites? Once again, it's because of the covenant that they made. Because God is a covenant-keeping God, they are a covenant-keeping people. Even though the Gibeonites had wronged the Israelites, they, the Israelites, decided not to destroy them. Even though Israel had wronged their God, God decided not to destroy them by being gracious to them because of the covenant he has got with his people. The Gibeonites, in a sense, are, are a small version of Israel because Israel are only right with God because of the covenant they have. But isn't that you? Isn't there a sense we're all Gibeonites, that we have wronged our God and yet because of his name and because of his covenant, he's gracious towards us. In the Lord Jesus, he, he shows us how, how, how willingly he's going to stick to the promises that he's made to save us. And that's what he has done. That unlike the Israelites, God is not fooled when we try and pull the wool over his eyes. But he is a God that still saves us by grace because of the covenant that he has made with us. Covenant that stretches way back to Abraham. That is fulfilled in Jesus. And that we will see brought to fruition when Jesus actually comes back. That's the God we serve, our covenant-keeping, 
gracious God. And we're going to honour him by making decisions that are actually thinking about him first, putting him at the centre of our decision-making. So we will be truly a holy people. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, I pray that uh, we would not be a people that are... Um, that think about our decisions primarily pragmatically, but with you in mind, help us to be a people of prayer. Uh, help us to make uh, decisions that honour you. But Lord, I, I also do pray that we would um, realise that just like the Gibeonites, they had blown it with Israel, we have blown it with you. And we thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God that saves us because of your fidelity to your promises. Help us, help us always to trust and honour you, right? In Jesus' name, amen.